You're listening to the Transformative Podcast brought to you by the Research Center for the History of Transformations at the University of Vienna. Welcome to the Transformative Podcast. My name is Tukling Nguyen Vu, and I'm a postdoctoral fellow at the Research Center for the History of Transformations. And I am very happy to have Łukasz Stanek today with us. Łukasz Stanek is Professor of Architectural History at the Manchester School of Architecture at the University of Manchester in the UK. Łukasz Stanek wrote a fantastic book, Architecture and Global Socialism, Eastern Europe, West Africa and the Middle East in the Cold War that came out with Princeton UP in 2020. And the book received many awards, reviews and in general attracted lots of attention. Welcome, Łukasz. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, Lynn, for having me. So, Lukash, imagine we are now meeting in Accra. Where would you take us to look for the tangible traces of the connections between post-colonial Ghana and the socialist Eastern Europe and the global Cold War that you so brilliantly retrieve and analyze in your book, Architecture and Global Socialism? Well, if we are meeting in Accra, then I suggest that we meet in the restaurant of the International Trade Fair. We could have then our conversation of a bowl of fufu, or of a tilapia with banku. And then we could see the trade fair, which is, a, I think, really interesting ensemble of buildings, which resulted from the collaboration between Eastern Europeans and Ghanaians under President Kwame Nkrumah so in the 1960s. And these are also the buildings which are on the cover of my book. The trade fair is an example of how modern architecture responded to climate, and so that included large eaves and latticework and louvers and cross-ventilation. But it is also a piece of a modernist city. You can see three functions of modern urbanism there. So work, housing and leisure. Work, including the trading function, which has expanded since then to other programs. Housing included the modernization of the neighboring La settlement, which was realized only to a small extent. And the leisure area was located at the ocean. And since then, it has been taken over by an enclave of luxury hotels and other development. And so the trade fair is a good place to see the traces of the collaboration between Ghanaians and Eastern Europeans, but also to see the development since then. Thank you all. You know, the ball fufu sounds uh, very appealing. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's just go back to your book. Like, who are the key actors and agents who enabled and carried out the transfer of architecture and expert knowledge between the Second World, post-colonial state and the Gulf countries? Yes. So maybe let me stay for a moment with the example of Ghana and the trade fair. That area was designed and built by the so-called Ghana National Construction Corporation or the GNCC. And this was the main organization in charge of buildings and infrastructure other than Krumah in Ghana. And it was headed by the Ghanaian architect Vic Adegbite, but by the 1960s, the majority of design architects in the GNCC were coming from socialist Europe, and they included Bulgarians, Hungarians, Poles, and Yugoslavs. So here you have already a range of actors. You have individual actors, including architects, planners, engineers, as well as managers, bureaucrats, foremen, scholars, and so on. But you have also institutional actors. Uh, as I mentioned, the GNCC was both a design institute and a construction company. And its work was conditioned by a range of 
other institutions, such as uh, various ministries in Ghana and in Eastern Europe, political parties, industrial companies, the military, and so on. And I think this is quite important to capture the variety of these actors and the specific perspectives on what is that they were doing in Ghana and other places. So some of them, it was indeed a question of transfer of knowledge and expertise. But for others, it was something else. It was a question of translation of cultural competence. It was a question of appropriation of technical solutions to the conditions on the ground. It was a question of export of intellectual labor. And these perspectives point at the various objectives of these actors, their own self-perception, but also the uneven relationships between them. So how did those exchanges change over time? How malleable were they in the end? And and what challenges and obstacles did they run into? Yes, that's a huge question. So maybe let me start by saying that I think that the temporal dynamics and the geopolitical distinctions were connected. And I believe that a big geopolitical distinction was quite important is that between the Comic-Con and the non-Comic-Con countries. So the Comic-Con being the economic organization of the socialist states under the Soviet hegemony. And so Southern Comic-Con member states, including Mongolia, Vietnam, and Cuba, were significant recipients of architecture resources from European socialist countries. These mobilities were sometimes coordinated by Comic-Con institutions and not without conflicts. And and, and I believe that this resulted in specific types of temporality defined, for instance, by multi-year plans and long-term objectives. All this took place within a general dynamics of the Comic-Con characterized by a mixture of exploitation and subsidy by the Soviet Union and other countries. On the other hand, there were those non-Comic-Con countries and, you know, a whole range of them. They started with countries sympathetic to socialism, such as Ghana, under the short-lived regime of Nkrumah. Then they included countries pursuing specific visions of socialist development, such as Iraq and the Ba'ath Party. And then there were countries hostile, or both elites hostile to socialism, such as Nigeria or the Gulf monarchies. By the 1970s, the oil-producing countries in North Africa and the Middle East became really important partners of the socialist countries, notably the satellite states. These countries were under an obligation to repay their debts, and so a number of the actors I'm, I'm talking about needed to earn convertible currencies. This was a dynamics and a temporality really different from that of Comic-Con collaboration. It uh, often resulted from expedient responses to short-term risks and opportunities and various crises, notably the sequence of oil crises. Your book tells such an interesting story about the enduring yet at times tenuous links between peripheral or semi-peripheral regions, for the lack of better terms, that were entangled in the global Cold War and its tensions that you just mentioned. So just why is it important to study those diverse connections after 89? Why it doesn't matter? Let me tell you about my recent experiences of sharing this research with two really different audiences. And this is an experience of writing two papers. The first paper was very recently published last week, actually, in the journal Contemporary European History. So this was really an audience of historians. The paper deals with the collaboration between East German and Romanian companies on a construction project in Iraq in the late 1970s. It shows how these actors operated on an intersection between the political economy of state 
socialism on the one hand, and on the other hand, on the emerging and, and Western-dominated market of design and construction services. In other words, this is a paper which offers a more nuanced view on the emerging globalization processes and shows how Eastern Europeans and Middle Easterners participated in these processes, even if in an unequal and liminal manner. The paper also uses architectural drawings as records of this negotiation by mid-level professionals and managers of the risks and incentives of such unequal and, and liminal position. And the second paper is about to be published by the journal called Urban Studies. And this paper is about something very different. It uh, tells the story of how Soviet, Eastern European, African, and Asian scholars during the Cold War compared cities in these regions. So, for example, how they compared Tashkent and Accra, Warsaw and Baghdad, Hungarian agricultural towns, and rural Nigeria. And this is an intervention into a vibrant debate in urban studies today. Participants of, of this debate postulate the extension of candidates, concepts, and positionality of urban comparison beyond the global Northwest. And so in the paper, I'm showing how these socialist and post-colonial scholars were doing just that, but also how their work was facilitated by the specific political economy of socialist internationalism. And so here you have two examples beyond my own discipline, of the kind of broader relevance of the material that I describe in my book. Your book ends in the late 1980s, and I would be really curious to learn how those networks of collaboration impacted and were impacted by the transformation of 1989 and 91. Could we say that, for instance, the presence of the Vietnamese community in post-socialist Europe is a tangible yet unexpected outcome of those patterns of exchange and visions? Yes, well, first... I believe that uh, this material helps us to understand better at least the specifically spatial character of post-socialist transformation in Eastern Europe. So if you like the urbanization of post-socialism. And I briefly mention in the book that uh, Eastern European architects and construction companies after 1989 benefited from the previous experience of collaboration with Western contractors and investors in the global south. And so these professional connections had a direct impact on the urbanization of Eastern Europe after 1989. But I think you know, beyond that, I wonder whether at least some among these urbanization processes, notably the question of sub-urbanization of Eastern Europe, had a longer genealogy. Based on my research, my hunch is that a lot could be gained from looking at them in a longer perspective since the 1970s. And this could show Eastern Europe's sub-urbanization as linked to the processes of decolonization and then to the flows of resources that followed, including oil, money, but also consumer objects and consumer patterns. They are also, and you know, to come back more directly to your, to your example, they are also things which very much puzzle me. Uh, when I began this research in Eastern Europe over 10 years ago, I was surprised by the active forgetting of these exchanges that I was studying. In particular, I was struck by this forgetting in view of the refugee crisis and the particularly shameful responses to this crisis in Poland and in Hungary. And these responses in the Middle East and at North Africa were often depicted as places with which the Poles and the Hungarians had nothing to do. And this very much contrasted with the truly generational and really en masse experience of so many people from socialist countries who worked in both regions in the 1970s and 1980s. I think this forgetting is really something to be studied more. But, you know, just to throw back the question at you, 
based on your own research of the Vietnamese community in Poland, how do you see these relationships? I agree with you, Łukasz, that the active forgetting, as you name it, that seems to be taking place in public sphere in Poland contrasts quite sharply with the very history of Poland's involvement in the global Cold War. Think about the early 1950s when the first large groups of Korean children arrived to Lower Silesia in Poland and had lived there for almost a decade. The fact that the newly socialist Poland accepted hundreds of Korean children is intrinsically and obviously linked with the Korean War as one of the first proxy wars in the global Cold War. While unfortunately little is known of those children's lives back in Korea, their very presence in Silesia is a proof of Poland's involvement, even if limited in terms of resources, in the global Cold War. And there are many more examples pointing to Poland's participation in the Cold War. The history of almost all non-European diasporas in contemporary Poland goes back to the 1950s and 1960s when first students from the so-called third world countries came to Poland as part of the global socialist but temporary mobility system. Also, the famous and the biggest Polish language school in Łódź, that still operates by the way, was founded in order to accommodate newly arriving students from the so-called global south. So those transcontinental contacts during socialism were there, and to some extent they still keep on shaping the ethnic composition of contemporary Polish society. In other words, a lot of things that take place in contemporary Poland are very deeply rooted in this socialist past that often is being omitted or forgotten by the public and by historians. I guess it's our task to unearth those stories and try to understand how they can be factored in so that a new picture of the past and the present can emerge. Thank you for this wonderful conversation, Lukasz. Absolutely. Thank you. You have been listening to the transformative podcast produced by Redset in Vienna. Wir sind Wir sind